This evening, we are recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3, the subject being the unity of the Spirit, and a particular portion of it, an examination of what is intended by the words, one baptism. Those of you who are listening to this recording, know that we have a habit of reading a portion of Scripture together, and if you like to share this and switch off for a moment or two, you might read together with us Hebrews chapter 9. We are considering in these readings on the Thursday evening the teaching of the of Paul's great epistle to the Ephesians. And before the visit to the United States, we were considering chapters 1, 2, and 3, which contain the great doctrine of this epistle, and many phases which are new. We are now picking up chapters 3, 4, four 5, and 6, which deal with the corresponding practice. And I discovered, in speaking to some friends, that there is a tendency among some of God's people to be very, very concerned about chapters 1, mm-hmm. 2, and 3, because it speaks about heavenly places and reveals a mystery and speaks about the one body and so on. But they say, well, we needn't bother too much about four, five, and six because that's only to do with practice. Well, I hope none of us are going to slip into that strange attitude. Only to do with practice. But at long last, if truth is not practical, I should say it ceases to be true. And if God has so arranged this epistle, that we have seven great items of doctrine which fill chapters 1, 2, and 3, and those seven items of practice in 4, 5, and 6 exactly balance every one of them, I think he's insisting and impressing upon our minds that he is concerned about that. That not only should we be rejoicing that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, but we should also remember that the purpose that God had in mind was that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love, which, though we may never reach it ourselves, is what we are destined to be in him. We looked at the word, which is a pivotal word, pivotal word of this epistle, chapter 4, the word worthy. And we found that Paul insisted upon this word worthy in Ephesians 4, in Philippians 1, where it is translated to be coming, only as it is coming, and again worthy in Colossians 1. The three great prison epistles contain the emphasis upon the idea of being worthy. And the word axios, which is thus translated, can refer to the beam of a barrel, and the whole figure can be set forth by a pair of scales. As the Apostle used the word in Romans the 8th chapter, he said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that you would reveal in us. Not worthy to be compared is the translation. Well now we looked at the um, introductory words which do not impinge on any particular thing that you do, but how you do it, which is of great importance. This walk, verse 2, is with all loneliness. And that word loneliness is translated in the Acts of the Apostles with all humility of mind. And it perfectly echoes the closing word of this section where it says that the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, verse 17. That's where it begins, that's where it ends. You have the positive and you have the negative. With all loneliness, and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, before ever you come to any practical thing to do. This is the spirit in which it is the approach. We're going to deal with a rather controversial subject this evening, but so far as I'm concerned, I'm not fighting anybody, it makes, takes two to make a quarrel, but it may touch somebody a little bit on the raw. Somebody may not be prepared to admit Some might say this is a highly controversial subject, why introduce it here? Well, friends, the very first thing we are enjoined to do in the practical outworking of truth is to endeavour to keep 
the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, you say that's the, the very reason why you should never introduce controversy at all. Oh, I see, friends, your idea of peace is quietness, is it? Well, I'll tell you where you can find absolute quietness. In a churchyard that are all dead. Oh, no, this is living. And the word here, to keep the unity of the spirit, is to guard, as you would a sacred trust. And you may have to fight for it, if needs be, rather than yield. Oh, there's no idea that because you're keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, you're going to be misappliable and whatever anybody else says to you, just bring your hands together and agree for peace and quietness. They all know. Two aspects, you see. Well, we looked at the unity of the spirit, as we have it in verses 4, 5 and 6. I'm going to read those verses again to bring the items before you. They are seven. One body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Seven items. It has been likened to what the rather foolishly called a seven-branch candlestick. But you cannot have a seven-branch candlestick without it being lopsided. What we need is the candlestick that was in the tabernacle with its central shaft and three branches on either side. The central shaft of this unity is the one law, not a doctrine, but a person. That's a blessed thought. And then on either side of him is ranged the hope and the faith the spirit and the baptism, the body and the God and Father. Well now, we look to that in general. We are looking tonight particularly at the one baptism. The reason being this, if we are to be entrusted, if we are to walk worthy, and we have mixed views as to what has been entrusted to us, or what is our calling, well, our walk will be correspondingly staggering rather than straight walking. Then we must remember that the, the teaching of the Epistle to the Ephesians is an elective company that were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. They are all the members of one body. And what we say concerning that company may not necessarily be true of every Christian today. The great outside work of preaching the gospel, nearly always impinges upon the gospel according to John and rightly so. There is the witness of God to the other sheep which were not of that fold, as he said, and the one essential feature of John's gospel is that they have life through his name. Uh, just what their constitution is, what sort of church membership that is, you'll never discover that in John's gospel. And if you know Christian believers you know that any amount of them could be rightly called John's Gospel Christians. Well now, we're not legislating for them. We're not telling them just what they are to understand with regard to baptism. We are legislating for ourselves. And we're only saying, so far as we are concerned, who believe the teaching of Ephesians and rejoice in its peculiar character, all tell us what this baptism is, otherwise... It will spoil our unity. We shall not be able to safeguard it if we have two minds about it. That's all it amounts to. It's rather strange that this one particular ordinance has got its um, supporters from almost every angle. If you take the Church of England, you get a, a writer like W.H. Griffith Thomas, a splendid evangelical, who said when the little child is sprinkled in a one. It doesn't make any difference to the little child. It's only a dedication and a looking forward to the day when it will be apprised of the promises that were made and unless it lives up to them, nothing happens. Now that's in the Church of England. But in the Church of England you'll meet another man and he, he spoke of me. Oh, he says, that christening of the little baby makes all the difference between life and death, time and eternity. Something happens then which is miraculous. And so we have the doctrine of baptismal regeneration in the one church, and a good many other varieties as well. Then you have adult immersion, so that we have 
one company of God's people emphasizing speaking, and another company emphasizing immersion. I always remember listening to Spurgeon's son give his father's wonderful lecture on a candle, and eventually brought out and put on the edge of the pulpit a wonderful candelabra. All little candles burning. And he said, this is the Congregationalist, and this is the Methodist, and this is what not. And then he picked up an old-fashioned candle, like, he says, but this is the tip, and he put that right in the top, that was the Baptist. Well, there you are. And you know, if you read, say, a Baptist with regard to baptism, he extracts so many passages from the Old Testament and the New to prove that it's by immersion, you shall have finished it. But then if you go all over the subject again, you can find just as many references to sprinkling. Well, we read in the Hebrews 9, the body sprinkled with clean water and so on. So you see, we've got to watch our step, lest we side with one or the other. We've got to side with the teaching of Scripture, whatever consequences may follow. Well, there's no need for us to waste time in going over all the different things. And you know how it gets us into one of the hymns. Our version says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The hymn says, one Lord, one faith, one birth. So everybody without thinking is singing birth instead of baptism. That's rather arguing in a circle, isn't it? You're assuming a thing before it's proved. Well now let's come to the question then a little bit more intimately about this question of baptism. First of all, we have seven items in an epistle which is admittedly on a very high spiritual plane. It belongs to the same group that we have in, say, Colossians chapter 2, which says this, Let no man judge you with regard to meat, or drink, or holy days, or the Sabbath day even. Don't let anybody judge you with regard to those, which are shadows, the bodies of Christ. So, you see, we, don't, we do not belong to a calling which has to resort to shadows, and types, and rites, and ceremonials. We've been on to a corner where those shadows have played their part. They're all put aside, even the God-given Sabbath, because we find our all and more in Christ himself. Then again, surely when you, you rehearse these seven items of the unity of the Spirit, don't you feel that when you say one baptism when you need water, you have an intruder? You know, sometimes on the wireless or sometimes in a paper, They'll give you a string of names and they say, uh, what is wrong with this string of names? You may have, say, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Brahms, Bach, and Turner. Well, you say Turner because Turner was a painter and the others were musicians. Well, you take one body, one spirit, one pope, one lord, one faith, one God and Father. They're all on a high spiritual level. Then you go and put one baptism in, and you can only have one. You cannot have the baptism of the Spirit. You can only have water. Because it's one. You dare not trifle with the word one, Lord, or one, Spirit. Yet you know as well as I do in the Acts of the Apostles. Peter himself said, Can any man forbid the water upon whom the Spirit is already poured? Two baptisms. So we've got to say, well, why does it say one baptism in Ephesians 4 if it means two? Well, I say to you, why do you make two of it if it says one? Most of us in this meeting realize what we call dispensational truth. That is to say, what is true at one time and one period at one people may not necessarily be true at another time for another people. And anybody who is a believer in the gospel of the grace of God is already a dispensationalist. Because he no longer puts himself under the law of Moses. But if he did, he'd be fallen from grace. And Christ would profit him happy. Well, we're only taking the principle another step. Quite a number have got the idea, by what I read and what I hear, that baptism is essentially a Christian thing. Now, that is a pity. Because it comes over and over again in the Old Testament. But it's valuable a little bit. And the passage we read just now, Hebrews the ninth chapter, has the word baptism in it. But, unfortunately, I'm not going to try to probe the 
reasons why things were done, but I know King James had a little hand in uh, suggesting and regulating what words should be used and what words should not be used in the translation of this wonderful version. So when we read in Hebrews 9, in verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings, we just pass by. But if it stood out boldly as it should, diverse baptisms, diverse baptisms, and then are immediately called carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation, you may hesitate. You say, could God at one breath speak of carnal ordinances which he enjoyed upon them, and yet at the same time he was enjoying them all upon the ears at the same moment. Have we got mixed in somewhere? Is there something that needs rectifying? You know that the the uh, testimony of um, the Gospels is that baptism was accepted long before there was what we would call a Christian church or Christianity. Let us take um, two references. Mark, the seventh chapter. Here again. We got baptism in view, uh, but not always obvious. Mark, the seventh chapter. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding to tradition of the elders. And when they come to the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and tables. And you may not be aware that that is a reference to baptism, as you'll see by the original. Or they were baptizing all the time in the Jews. Not many once, like it, go, it takes place in a church ordinance today, but they had to continue it. These things were not imposed by God upon them. These things were imposed by the traditionists. They added to it. And so our Lord set them aside. And in Luke, the 11th chapter and the 38th verse. And when the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed or baptized before dinner. This washing, this ceremonial rite, there's no idea that the Lord was antagonistic to being clean. There's no idea that little boys have been very glad to have heard our Lord say they had no need to wash their hands before dinner and so become Christians and follow him. Oh no! The scripture enjoins cleanliness of mind and body. But this was a superficial thing which they trusted in and which had no effect except to make them more Pharisees than ever. Let's take this another argument that is often put forward very solemnly and with meaning. Whatever we say in this meeting, we're not lampooning anybody. We're not belittling their faith. We're only asking them to reconsider. I think it was impressed upon me that baptism surely should be something which every believer should do because then they are following the Lord. Following the Lord. And that's how you see, he was baptized. Well, then if he was baptized, therefore, surely, you can follow him. So, should we look at um, John, the first chapter, and the first, and the 31st verse, to see how far this holds. I was going to say holds water, but that was a slip. I didn't really intend that. John 1, 31. John has come baptizing. And he gives you the reason. I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. Well, that's a plain scriptural statement. That John the Baptist was baptizing with one great object in view. The subsidiary one was that they all came about the baptized unto repentance. But he says, I came baptizing that he the Messiah, should be manifest. For God had told me that upon whom I saw this Spirit of God descending the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. 
And if you turn to Matthew, the third chapter, where we have this same incident recorded, there is another statement that I think we do well to ponder. When we say a person who is baptized today is following the Lord, that is to say, our Lord went down into the waters of baptism, so therefore must we. In Matthew 3.15, Jesus answered and said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becoming us to fulfil all righteousness. Well, you can take that from another point of view then. If by that immersion of our Saviour in the River Jordan, he fulfilled all righteousness, what are we doing? To do it all over again, that might be just as much an argument as urging somebody to follow. I'm only putting the two before you so that you can weigh them in the balances of the sanctuary. And then coming to Colossians chapter 2, we've already quoted that uh, chapter where they set aside holy days and meats and drinks. There is another challenging uh, passage which I think we ought to consider. Colossians 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. But that's only a part of a statement. Colossians doesn't start off with the words, buried with him in baptism. <coughs> it says in verse 11, In whom also ye are circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. You see, if you're going to argue that verse 12 must mean literal, physical baptism in water, you know what you've got to prove, don't you? You've got to prove, first of all, that verse 11 means physical circumcision. But now you know that's absolutely opposed to the whole teaching of the New Testament and nobody would put it forward. So did the circumcision of Christ as a spiritual equivalent in verse 11 they have already prepared the mind for a, a spiritual equivalent of the baptism of Christ in verse 12. You say, well, what do you mean? What spiritual equivalent of what baptism? Well, let's answer the question. Matthew, the 20th chapter. Or would you say, the, the baptism of Christ was in chapter 3. And you made a mistake in your references. Yes, but friends, don't you see? That's just our point. After our Saviour was baptised in Jordan, after he was baptised in Jordan, and that was all finished, he said he was looking forward to a baptism. Well, he wasn't to be baptised all over again in water. That never took place. He wasn't to be baptised by the Spirit again. That had already taken place. Well, what was in front of him? Matthew 20. Let's look at verse 20 to see the context. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these, my two sons, may sit for one on my right hand and the other on my left in thy kingdom. She wanted the lot, didn't she? She didn't say, Let one of them and let somebody else have a turn. No, my two sons. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? What baptism is this? Not the baptism that's passed, a baptism to be endured, or whatever the word we may feel applies to it. But they say unto him, we are able. But he said unto them, ye shall drink indeed of my cup. And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared in my heart. Well, there's only one answer to the question, what baptism had the Lord in view? It was the baptism of suffering, the baptism of death, the baptism which means life and death to us. So did you see, Immediately we've got the challenging thought. Have we been thinking about a baptism that's all over and finished? And have we forgotten the baptism that the Lord had in front of him? With which his people could share. As you see, you, you may be baptized in that. So, that question I leave with you. Now when you turn to another point, which may be a little challenging. Galatians, chapter 3, 
Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor the free. There is neither male nor female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now keep that in mind, and turn with me, we have to come back to Galatians 3, turn with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The same Apostle Paul is speaking, or writing. He says in verse 14 of chapter 1, I thank God that I baptize none of you but Christmas and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And uh, I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Rather a casual reference, isn't it? You cannot believe that any church that believes baptism to be water baptism, to be an ordinance of God, would stand up and say, well, friends, we've had a few baptisms this last year, but we've kept no record of them. You couldn't do it, could you? Couldn't the Apostle Kennedy say this? For Christ sent me not to baptize, if he was referring to Galatians 3. Could he say, Christ sent me not to baptize, when he said, but as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Christ sent me not to do that. Well, this is the essence of his teaching. To put on Christ. To be found in him. You're all one in Christ Jesus. You see, if you're logical people, you know you're facing two different subjects with one name given to them. In one epistle he says, I wasn't sent to baptize. And the other, he brings this right into focus and says, that's the glory of this calling. In this company, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male or female, you're all one in Christ. And if you could believe that the same apostle could glory in that baptism in Galatians 3, and then a few months afterwards tell you Christ sent him not to baptize at all, or, just as he says, didn't really matter much, he cannot possibly be referring to one of the same thing. But if ever there was a man who was a true magician, it was the Apostle Paul who you could find by reading his mighty epistles. Could be believed that he said, I'm going to prevent a good many of you from entering into this lesson. I'm going to do something which will prevent you from having this glorious union, one in Christ. I'm going to stop you from having the cleansing which you speak. I'm going to argue with you that you do not confess him in baptism. If that's so, this is what this apostle practically said, if that is so, it says, Christ said me not to do no sin. You know the apostle Peter could never have said the words, Christ said me not to baptize. You've only got to read his commission. So consequently we've got to face the fact that these words are used differently in different contexts. Supposing we look now at um, Mark, the 16th chapter. We will not go into the controversial aspect of this. We've got enough controversy this evening to last us, I think, as to what manuscripts include these words and what manuscripts leave them out, because if we went into it, we still have to confess, we are only repeating like parrots the findings of others. There's nobody here I believe. I hope I'm not misrepresenting anyone who are authorities on the ancient versions. But we accept Mark 16 in its integrity, and here's what we read. Verse 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What are you going to do with that, friends? All to the order. Oh, you wouldn't do it consciously, but that's what's done. If you ask 
an ordinary evangelical Baptist, he would tell you, the baptism doesn't save anybody. He's a saved man, but he's obedient to the command of the Lord, and he's baptized to show. You say, that's all very well, friend, and it's a lovely spirit. But it doesn't say so here. It says, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Now, I knew a very elderly man who had been for years among the Christadelphians. He was such a zealous advocate that I think he founded about 30 assemblies of the Christadelphians. And he told me he sat and watched his old mother die. And he watched her with a heavy heart because the doctrine that he then believed was that his mother was lost because although she believed Christ, she had never been baptized. Is it? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And then on, on top of that, it doesn't really say that if you are, if you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved. It says, and these signs shall follow. Not they may follow, but they shall follow. Then the belief. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They shall. Well, some people have got these things. At least they say so. I'm not able to investigate. But I don't know whether anybody in this congregation have got these signs that follow. You haven't. Well, if this, if this passage is true of you, you haven't got any indication yet that you're saved. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved and these signs shall follow. Well, I'm an unsaved man, but I've got nothing. If this is true for me, you see, I say for me, these signs did follow. It is true. Keeping in its right place. Pentecost was a glorious truth. But the church to which you and I belong never began at Pentecost. We do remember that this Lord's own statement in the Acts of the second chapter that there were Jews out of every nation under heaven keeping the feast of Pentecost. And Peter's attitude to Cornelius in chapter 10 shows you that there would have been a riot on the day of Pentecost if one single Gentile had been there unless he had already become a proselyte. We've read into the early chapter of the Acts just something which is tradition and not quite true. There isn't the slightest indication that there was a single Gentile. Why should a Gentile keep a Jewish feast which had been set every year since the law of Moses indicated it in Leviticus chapter 23. There was no church movement at the time, and it belonged to Israel, as you can very well find out. Well, if we have more positive statements, oh, there's one other passage in Hebrews chapter 6, which I think we must turn to. We've looked at Hebrews chapter 9 in passing, where it speaks about the washings, uh, but again, the Apostle touches upon it in Hebrews chapter 6. He is urging these Hebrews to give up certain things which belong to the infancy of faith and go on to the full-grown manhood. Will you look at chapter 5 to get that? Verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk, and not a strong meat. He is speaking of them as babes. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat, then only to them that are of full age. And you notice the margin. It tells you that the word full age is the word perfect, which is one of the key words of Hebrews, going on unto perfection. It's to grow up and become full of full age. There's a great misunderstanding about this word perfect. It's a subject of itself. But it's worth ventilating just for a moment. The ordinary conception of perfection is to get better, to improve. But this very chapter says of Christ, verse 9, and being made perfect. Did he improve? Did he get better? The word is in common use with us that gives us the word perfect. So common, I almost wish it wasn't quite so common just now. The word television contains the Greek word that gives us the word perfect. The same as the word telephone and telegram and telescope. All the words tele mean going right on and touching the tape at the end. 
Doesn't mean getting better. It's a word of a race course. Going right on to the end. So a child grows. So if you lived in the days of the Apostle, as I've said before in dealing with this word, you might be invited to a party to celebrate the fact that the son of the house had come to the end of his life. And you wouldn't misunderstand it in that way. You might today. He'd come to the end of his life because the end of his life was to grow up and become a man. Not the not salvation of his life. But that's just by the way. Those who are perfect, adult, full grown, those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, here comes the consequence. Leaving, now our version says, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. If I were a modernist, that would be a lovely text, wouldn't it? Dearly beloved brethren, here we have an exhortation in the very word of God to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. And we play old hands with them as a consequence of this verse. You know full well that cannot be the teaching. But the margin puts you on the right track. Therefore, leaving the word of the beginning of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, which is the word end or goal. They did baptize in water. John did. They did baptize in water. Peter did. They did baptize in water. Paul did. But now they're coming to see that many things that they did were what a child would do. But you don't expect a full-grown man to do what a child does. And that's where they are. The epistle to the Ephesians says that the church, which is there in view, is a perfect man. A perfect man. And the apostle has given us an argument, when I was a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. So strictly speaking, it may be that many a person who has been following the ceremonial, the ritual, or the ordinance, whichever word you may choose, of baptism in water, is manifesting that they are children as contrasted with full-grown believers. We're not against children. We would encourage them. But you know what a tragedy is in a life and a family? If a child never grows up, well, that may be where come on. For the apostle said, for the time being, you ought to be teaching others. Well, you say, what's this going to do with baptism? Oh, I'm sorry, I haven't got that, have I? Let us go on under perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms. Now, notice it says leaving. You, you might say, we're not going to leave faith toward God. Yes, there's a reason. Because the emphasis upon God has to be corrected. I can hear people to this very day when they're preaching, and especially over the wireless, they're urging men to believe God. And I almost feel I could speak through the wireless and say, Oh, friend, when are you going to tell men they cannot believe God if they neglect the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus? If they believe God in Christ, believe also in me. So we're not setting aside faith in God. We're making it possible when we say, oh no, Jewish believers, said Paul, Hebrew believers, you believe God long enough and you know where it leads you. If you reject the one way, you'll never believe God in the ultimate. So we're not dispensing for that. And the doctrine of baptism, he says, you've had baptisms enough. In Hebrews 9, he said, there are carnal ordinances imposed upon you. Always oh, just put no more trust in them. And think of all the dippings and sprinklings that go on with regard to sanctification, sprinkling with this, sprinkling with that, washing clothes. Oh, he said, it's done. Every item of that has been fulfilled. We had in Christ the reality of which all that was shadow and type and symbol. Well, now let us come to two other references. One in the 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's very remarkable that even though you read the very serious treatise on baptism, you'll discover that any amount of the writers appear as though they've never read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. They refer to the tabernacle ordinances, they refer to almost every reference, but somehow or the other this one gets left on, on one side. 
1 Corinthians 10, 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how all, that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's the first baptism of its kind in Scripture. And you notice, they were baptized into Moses. The whole nation had come out as a redeemed people and at that moment, crossing the Red Sea, they were consolidated and baptized into Moses, a faint shadow of what was yet to come when the believer who comes out under the deliverance of the greater Passover shall be not baptized into Moses, but baptized into Christ. But here's the point, and I think we must look at the scriptures to see it for ourselves. Psalm 106, verse 9. There are quite a number of references to the crossing of the Red Sea. I'll give you these as specimens. 106, verse 9. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths, as through the wilderness. And again, in chapter 70, in Psalm 78, verse 13. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand as a heap. And all the references, you'll find many uh, others referring to the crossing of the Red Sea, the one thing it insists upon is that they weren't touched with a drop of water. The first baptism, the first great typical baptism in the whole of these scriptures stresses the fact that they crossed over like men, crossed dry, shod and dry hands. I wonder why. I wonder why. Oh, you say, I can see the reason why that's never quoted then. Because to go into it rather intimately would rather raise objections, wouldn't it? But don't you see, friends? Here was something that took place before Mount Sinai. Then after Mount Sinai, then there were imposed upon them ordinances and ceremonials and precepts and so on that otherwise they would never have had put upon them and that were imposed upon them until the time of Reformation and their work was done and the way was clear. Now, we're not baptised into Moses, but we're baptised into Christ. How are we baptised into Christ? What do you say by being baptised in water? But it doesn't follow. Because when I come to my unity of the Spirit, I have the two arms on that side, one Spirit. On that side, one baptism. And I'm limited to one baptism. I'm limited. I dare not introduce a duality in that or any other one of these items. So if I've got to choose when I'm in a spiritual atmosphere like the Egypt, when it's balanced with one baptism, if I've got to choose, I cannot help this off. I say I cannot say I'll only have water baptism and never know the baptism of the Spirit. For the baptism of the Spirit is that which unites me with these crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Christ. Even Galatians before then have said that. So you see, if we're going to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace which has been made, we may have an awful row over it sometimes. Simply because people will endeavour to intrude into our unity that which may belong to their calling. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm not out to try to put the whole Christian world right. I'm not like Hamlet who said, the world is out of joint all cursed spite that ever I was born with. It's like, no wonder he really went mad. Oh no, we're here to put ourselves right. And we're here to, or to be able to give an answer to every man that questions us. And we say, you see, we come to a point in the bottom of this chart, you see a very little strip. The green patch at this side is water only. That's John the Baptist. He baptised in water, but he's no more. But he said one that's coming was baptised in spirit. Then during the Acts of the Apostles, they had both water and spirit. And in most cases, the baptism of the spirit was manifested and accompanied by signs and miracles. And then we come right over into the present dispensation of the mystery, which is a parenthesis during Israel's blindness. And there is no water. It's just baptism of spirit. Uniting us with Christ 
making us one with him. I think that's where we'll now turn to one other reference and then our time will be completed. The Epistle to the Romans, chapter 6. The Epistle to the Romans, chapter 6. What shall we say then? This is the consequence of the argument of chapter 5, which ends up that a sin of reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. An absolute, complete position of grace. Then the Apostle, for our guidance and our warning, is a supposing an objector. And you will notice this objector appears four times in chapter 6 and 7. Let's see that. Verse 1. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Then comes an argument. You'll find it recurs, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. That's the second one. Then chapter 7, verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. And finally, verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto thee? God forbid. So you see the value of a structure. You've got your four items there. A series of protests. A series of us. Now the first one says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's his answer? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The apostle never argued with them as to how could you possibly say continue in sin? He says, if you're dead to it, you can't live it. He immediately strikes that note. And then he says, no, he not that so many of us, as were baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Baptised into Jesus Christ. There are some who teach that if you are baptised in water, you are baptised into Jesus Christ. But you see, when we compare Galatians, where they were made all one in Christ, and compare that with the Apostle's attitude, Christ sent me not to baptize. He must have been speaking about two aspects of baptism. Well, you never could imagine the Apostle would say, Christ sent me not to baptize every one of you into his death, because that's the very thing he was out to do. Associating them by this great principle of reckoning that when Christ was crucified, in other words, we're crucified with him. And when he died, we are said in this chapter to have died with him. And when he was buried, we are said to have been buried with him. And when he was quickened, we are said to be quickened with him. And his Ephesians goes on, and we are raised together with him. And we are seated together with him. Are you going to put baptism in, in all that lot? Are you going to put some right or ceremony in all that lot? What are you going to put in when it says, we were crucified with him? Or we were raised with him. Well, that's one of us. It is, we were buried with him. So did you see, the sheer fact that you may be able to set forth in a symbol, a person being in mercy of water, that's not the reality. Oh, no. The baptism in water doesn't unite you with the death and the resurrection of Christ. It may in a day when symbols and signs were tolerated and given, it might have set it forth. But if it did, in those early days, it cannot do it now, so far as we are concerned. For we are already beyond ordinances, ceremonies, signs. We've got everything complete without the addition in Christ. We just go on. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So we're united with his, in his death. We're united in his life. But if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And so the argument goes on. But you cannot intrude into this great argument of chapter 6 and 7 
an ordinance which the Apostle has written to the Hebrews has been something imposed upon them, telling them that they're going on under protection, they should leave it, assuring us that Christ sent him not to say a word about it, and yet brings it prominently forward in this majestic statement that we have in 6 and 7. I think there's only one answer, and that is we are facing a twofold use of one word. That is to be water, yes. But not for the church of the present dispensation. It's an intruder into the sevenfold unity of the spirit, as you can see. And it cannot be made literal in Colossians 2, but if it, but if it is, it necessitates the literality of circumcision as well, which, as you must say, is not only absurd, but evil. And so I just reversed in front of you the reasons why some of us do not say that in this company, unless you are baptized in water, you cannot be considered as an obedient believer in Christ. We have never imposed upon anybody here any of these regulations. If a person comes to me and says, well, I feel that I'm not obedient to the law, I should say to him, well, my conscience and my reason of scripture set me free so far that is concerned. And I should be contrary to my calling if I submitted to that ordinance. But if you honestly feel that, I can only say you must follow the dictates of your conscience. We don't ask you, and we don't enjoy it upon you. But I'm asking you this evening to consider that if we're going to be those who shall trust, who shall guard this sacred trust, this sacred trust which includes one baptism, all let us think more of once before we maintain that that one baptism can only be a baptism in water where there are so many things which are gathered from the scriptures which point in the very opposite direction. Now we may in fact have a certain amount of give and take with one another with regard to this subject. But next Thursday, We've got another subject in this unity of the Spirit. And here I honestly believe we have no opportunity of give and take. You say, what is that? The one law. If we are sisters and siblings as to the person of Christ, well, there's no unity of the Spirit that's possible to keep. So I'm asking you if you can possibly meet together again at our meeting next Thursday to consider an even more solid element. Who is the one law? And why is he so called?